Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil, and today I'm in conversation with Clemson University professor J. Brent Morris, author of Dismal Freedom, A History of the Maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp, and this is published by our friends at UNC Press. And so, Dr. Morris, I'm excited for our conversation today and to get us started on our convo. Um, and, I, and like I said in, in the question uh, before, we, uh, before we got started, um, I want to really start a new tradition where in, in almost like a really a poetic space, I want authors to be able to um, provide a piece of their book that they believe it really centers our conversation. Um, and also for another reason, not everyone gets an audiobook too. So as a way for the listeners and future readers to be able to hear you uh, recite portions of your book, can you select a passage for us to read and also provide uh, the page number if possible too? Yeah, absolutely. And first, Adam, I want to thank you for the opportunity to, to talk with you about this today. Um, I will talk about the, the Dismal Swamp and the Maroons that live there, you know, any chance I get. And it's it's been a great um, experience writing this book, doing all the research that led up to the writing of it, and to finally have it out in the world um, and have other people have access to this story is, is just amazing. So thanks for the opportunity. And um, the passage that I'm going to read really does kind of center what I wanted to do with this book. And it's it's actually from the introduction. And if I had to kind of pick anything that was a, a, a this my main arguments in a nutshell, you know, why the book is necessary, how I've gone about writing it, and what I hope readers take away from it. Uh, it's this, it's, it's not really short, but it, it kind of gets at why I was brought to the story and why I realized that despite all the, the obstacles and the difficulties in, in bringing this story to bear, um, why it was necessary and why this work had to be done. So it's on page uh, 12 into 13. And it's talking about the voices of the Maroons and essentially why, why very few people have tried to, to get at this story as well. Scholars have seldom listened to their voices. But maroon voices were at times deafening in the American South, especially in and around the Great Dismal Swamp. They collectively registered one of the most thunderous indictments of slavery, and the echoes chafed at the ideological bases on which um, enslavers relied to justify owning other human beings. Marinage and the possibility of marinage and all enslaved people were potential maroons. It exploded the hegemony of slaver power and, rela- and replaced it with an unspoken and smoldering charge of impotence to control people who, according to white supremacist orthodoxy, should have been incapable of independent thought and undesiring of independence. Maroon voices demand a reassessment of the meaning of freedom. Marinage and the dismal represented an alternative to a life of enslavement. It also represented a choice in most cases to live free lives in the swamp, in the South, rather than seeking it in a free state or Canada. 
Maroon voices also remind us that freedom was not just an accomplishment after passage along the Underground Railroad, but a marinage process sustained by their own heroic efforts. Dismal Swamp Maroons also relentlessly resisted their enslavement and the brutalities of slavery through a method, their marinage, that at once shook fissures into the bedrock of the institution, while not usually having as their goal its overthrow. As their lives and voices make clear, freedom was their primary objective. And all that was part of their marinage, including their initial escape, helping themselves to the resources of slave labor camps, refusing to dis- or seeking to disappear in the dismal, working alongside enslaved canal workers, and yeah, sometimes even rebellion. All of these responses to enslavement landed somewhere on a continuum of resistance. Now, some scholars have dismissed the impact of North American marinage because the Maroons did not generally wage constant and outright warfare against their enslavers, as some Maroons in other locales did. However, resistance didn't need to have revolution or even a direct critique of the slave system as its goal. In the Dismal Swamp, even when Maroons did not direct violent attacks against their enslavers or rise up in rebellion, their very existence and total defiance of their enslavers maintained the constant potential for such action. The impact of the Dismal Swamp Maroons' resistance was cumulatively overwhelming, if not ever directly catastrophic. So, in a lot of ways, that's what most of my arguments go towards is, is is getting these maroon voices out there really for the first time in a lot of cases, letting them tell the story, letting their actions lead the way and and putting all of this together to tell a story that is just remarkable and and probably the most exciting tale that I'll ever have a chance to tell. And and you did pretty and you did honestly very well with that. Um because reading your book is, you know, we were saying before I'm in the dissertation stage now writing about um, Tidewater uh, refugee women in the era of the uh, in the revolutionary era, and you know, so so your book was actually very helpful um, in terms of uh, even just verbiage, like literally and figuratively, um, you know, marooning as using that as an actual um, status to say that not everybody who encountered the dismal was trying to stay there but oftentimes they would try to use the dismal in their um in their resistance efforts um whether as a way to uh challenge slavery um or even you know i I think this is the interesting part that for words you just said not everyone tried to overthrow the system because just by you virtually just trying to get free you and your family did not necessarily mean you're trying to overthrow. Now, th- now you also obviously uh, discuss folks in the book who you can, uh, I think, reasonably interpret attempted to. Um, and maybe not the overthrow of the entirety of all the colonies or all the states, but at the very least in and around the Tidewater region. And secondly, your book helped me to also think about when I write about the Tidewater, the Tidewater is not just Virginia. Because if you think economically and if you think um, through a a natural history lens, you can't talk about southeastern North Carolina or, you know, southeastern North Carolina or or southeastern Virginia, rather, without talking about northeastern um, North Carolina. And so that, you know, that was something that to me was, you know, I hadn't really thought about that um, until I read your, your first chapter. So. I really appreciate you 
and I'll show you some other appreciations a little bit later as well. So, so uh, hold <laughs> on for that. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and I'm also happy that once again, readers got to, um, or future readers, present listeners were able to hear you uh, read uh, from your book, because I don't know if you have plans to do an audio book or getting someone to do it, but you know, at the very least we can say that we got you on here, uh, which is, which is good. Um, now I'm also interested to know, um, you know, this is your second book as well. And, and so um, if I'm not mistaken, your second, um, I know you've done edited stuff too, but uh, I'm interested to know how you actually first got interested in the dismal and also the, the decision, I, I suppose, if I read you correctly, of how you got your first book and, you know, now that this is your second book. So trying to understand the process of, of, how, of how that happened. Because uh, I know you've been an engaged uh, a Maranage scholar of the Dismal, so I'm interested to know about your process. And your that, that's a fun backstory too. Um, so I was a English major as an undergraduate, and um, was one of you know. Now that I'm a professor, I realize that most students have no idea what they want to do when they graduate. And I was one of those too. Um, I either wanted to teach or go to law school. Lawyers drove nice cars, made a lot of money. I thought that, that's that's for me, um, but I couldn't decide, and I ended up just not applying to anything. And um, taking some graduate courses the next year, um, doing some work, you know, and things that weren't even related, but I ended up going to law school in two years after I graduated. And, uh, you know, I would find myself studying for exams in the undergraduate library. And when I take a break, I'd go, you know, pull down American history books off the shelves. And I realized at a certain point that, you know, one, I could be a lawyer and I'd be a pretty good lawyer, but two, I'd be miserable. <laughs> uh, what I really wanted to do was study history. And one of the things that I had come across, and um, I'd taken some graduate courses at University of South Carolina, I audited some just to make sure that graduate study was what I really wanted to do. And I had come across in some readings, a picture, um, an engraving of George Washington in a tree with a bear at the bottom of the tree. And I thought, well, I've never heard this story. I've heard the cherry tree story, but not the, the bear treeing George Washington. And um, come to find out, George Washington was an investor in, um, in the Dismal Swamp Land Company, which uh, is why he was in the swamp doing some surveying. And you know, supposedly he got run up a tree by a bear. But that got me interested in the Dismal Swamp. And the, I did a little bit of reading, which was essentially all you could do on the Dismal Swamp and the Maroons there. And I realized that there were people that lived in the swamp. I mean, this, this place where bears would chase the, the father of our country up a tree, which, you know, for what I could read, sounded like a pretty terrible place. But there were people living there. And these were, you know, self-emancipated people who, you know, had chosen to live in a swamp rather than spend one more day enslaved. And I thought to myself, man, that is that is an amazing, you know, human story, right? It shows the resilience of this people, how how terrible slavery was and the links they would go to to get rid of it, to, to leave it behind. And um, when I left law school after the first year and applied to graduate schools, my graduate essay, uh, entrance essay was basically this this story about how I wanted to study liminal populations, you know, pirates, it's things like that, but especially Maroons. Um, so I, I started grad school. I took a, a direct to readings course on marinage. I wrote my first paper in grad school on the Dismal Swamp Maroons. Um, went to give that same, a version of that same paper at a conference in Virginia. Um, ended up being my first publication when the proceedings were published. And it was a weird sort of bittersweet thing. Uh, the, um, conference was in Norfolk, Virginia, and I was able to go to the Dismal Swamp for the first time while I was there. And I went into the swamp and I just sort of stood there and I was, you know, with the swamp for a while. And I felt just the immense weight 
of the place, you know, the importance, the, almost like the, the, um, the sacred space that I was occupying at that point. And I realized I've got to tell this story or somebody does, but I can't do it now that I, I didn't yet at that point have the skills to, to research people who, whose main life goal was to stay under the radar. You know, I just didn't know how to find these people, um, how to do it justice. So I kind of, in a very frustrated way, put it aside um, and not completely aside, kind of put it on the back burner and went on to a different project. Um, I, you know, I found a, a gap in the historiography of the abolitionist movement, and I filled that with my dissertation, which became my first book. Um, but I never fully got away from the dismal swamp. It wouldn't let me go. I mean, imagine yourself sort of stuck in the swamp, in the mud. You know, it's hard to extricate yourself. That was me. Um, that that paper that I gave at the conference was, like I said, published in the proceedings, and. Um, there were some documentary filmmakers in Virginia that um, called me out of the blue one day and wanted to know if I could come and, you know, be, be a part of this film that they were doing. And I did. And um, Dan Sayers was also an archaeologist that I came to know, uh, was also called in to be a part of this film. And he and I met in this process and um, developed, he mostly he developed, but I came on as historian to a big NEH grant that he wrote to do some research on the swamp. And I became the documentary historian for that. Um, it just seemed like Every time I would get busy with something else, the dismal swamp story would sort of tap me on the shoulder and say, here I am still. And as time went by, the, the stack of papers in my office that was um, devoted to the great dismal swamp maroons got bigger and bigger. And then it became boxes upon boxes. And finally, um, when the world kind of closed down because of COVID-19, I had some time and I just I decided now is the time to get this all together. I got you know all the research together, digested it all again and wrote the manuscript. And um, it's a long story. I mean, it, it, it really did take me two decades to get to the point where I was comfortable uh, with knowing how to find the story, first of all, and then telling the story. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a treat to be a part of this Dismal Swamp history, if only to, to get it out there for other people to read about. And, um, you know, hopefully, I'm pretty sure I didn't answer all the questions that there are about the Great Dismal Swamp Maroons, but um, other people who, um, who are going to follow are going to pick up on some of the things I wasn't, didn't have a chance to, uh, to get into and, and, and tell in different ways. It's really exciting, amazing story. And so you mentioned Dan Sayers for one. Shout out mm -hmm. to him. You know, we, we're going to make sure that uh, he gets this interview as well. Um, but then also you mentioned that the NEH grant too, uh, to do uh, research as well, um, archaeological um, research. So take us, you know, from where you are now, take us to the dismal and take us through your initial experiences, actually, because you said that um, after this conference and or during uh, in, in Norfolk that you um, visited the dismal for the first time. Um, but I'm sure that that experience during that conference time was very different than <laughs> the uh, interior of the dismal that it seems that you got into. So can you take our listeners and future readers into the dismal to help us to better understand the lives, at least as much as, you know, folks can see even now in, in the yeah. 21st century. So, so take us there to your initial experiences. Give us the sights and the sounds. So there's a, there's currently a road that kind of goes through the dismal swamp. And that's where I went um, when I was at this conference. And, you know, I'm standing on this paved road in my blazer and tie kind of looking out into the swamp and, that was one thing. Um, but the, the Great Dismal Swamp has been over the last you know, 100 years or so drained to some extent. 
but originally, I mean, the Dismal Swamp was 2,000 square miles of territory. And it, it goes about 50 miles inland from the Atlantic um, and straddles the North Carolina-Virginia border. I mean, it was the size of the state of Delaware. It's huge. Um, and most of my experience with the Dismal, apart from that, that quick visit to this, you know, very refined part of the swamp, I guess you could say, uh, was just in the sources, was doing research in different archives and, and reading old newspapers, looking for any hints and clues that I could about the story. Um, I really got to, to go in and experience the swamp for the first time uh, with the archaeologists um, who were part of the Great Dismal Swamp Landscape Study. And that's the um, archaeology-focused research group that was um, headed up and, and established by Daniel Sayers. He was a William & Mary graduate student when we met, but he um, now works at American University. And, and this was um, essentially where the fieldwork was done for his dissertation on the Dismal Swamp Maroons. Um, but it was a team. And uh, it was funded by a three-year NEH grant, um, a couple hundred thousand dollars. You know, most of that money went to the actual field work itself, which is not cheap. But, you know, I got a little bit to, uh, to do this research. But I was lucky enough to, to be a part of the second phase of field work in the swamp. And, you know, I don't have, I don't know the skills. I don't know how to really be a good archaeologist, but I could go and observe. And that was just um, a, a, an amazing experience to be a part of that. But to give you a sense of, of what the Dismal Swamp would have been like and, and why it was such a refuge for so many people. To get to the site of the dig, we, we piled into a four-wheel drive Chevy Suburban, okay? Um, and then drove to the swamp, got onto a, like a 19th century logging road, drove at least, um, I think, two miles into the swamp in this four-wheel drive Suburban, piled out of the Suburban. Everybody got... Um, these uh, these waders that went up to their chest, um, snake-proof chaps to put on their legs. Um, everybody got a bell to scare bears if you came upon any. Um, I had a net for the mosquitoes and the bugs that went over my head. Um, several people had machetes. <laughs> and we got out of the, um, the Suburban, onto the trail, and then went into the swamp. And it took about two hours to get about three-quarters of a mile into the swamp to where the dig was. And this is if you subtract the suburban and subtract the logging road, I mean, it would have taken days to to approach this location where this this significant maroon village was. Um, so it wasn't just like, you know, you go to the swamp and you're there. It's you you make the decision to literally take your life in your hands to extricate yourself from enslavement. Um, and then you get to the swamp and the biggest challenge is still to come. You know, you have to survive it. Um, and there's there's so many interesting aspects of that process of going from the slave labor camps to the swamp itself. Um, there were sentries that were posted around the swamp that would, would watch you for a while to make sure you were the right kind of person who might be invited into the swamp. Um, there were hidden paths that you had to know how to get to certain places in the swamp. You didn't just show up in the village. I mean, you had to know where you were going to get there or be led there. Um, but it's just, I mean, it, it was, it was really eye-opening to you know, encounter a bear to encounter a poisonous snake to realize that people that lived in the swamp came across these things every day and it was a regular part of their life. And to realize also that, well, you know, once you're there, that swamp becomes your greatest protector. Those bears and those snakes and those alligators keep people out um, that would come in to try to reclaim you. So, you know, the swamp in a, in a way is, is dangerous. It's terrifying, but it's also um, it's also there as as a big natural protector of these people who created these worlds all into themselves. So as a follow up here, um, how do you think? Because also we're historians, right? Quote unquote, um, we're trained historians. 
historicism, you know, your first person experiences are should not, you know, impede your ability to write an objective story, yada, yada, yada. Right. You know, it's bullshit, but you know, gotta say it. There. <laughs> um, but with that being said, how did this archeological experience help you to write Dismal Freedom? Yeah. Because obviously you could have written it without it, but I'm interested to know how it mm. helped you or aided you uh, mm. to be able to construct your story during COVID. Yeah, well, it really in two different ways. Um, the most immediate way that it impacted my writing of the story was just, I mean, you say you're not supposed to take your first person experiences into it, but I did. I mean, you go into the swamp and the process of getting to where these people lived in and of itself, it, it just, it tells you about just what the magnitude is of this, this, this journey that people went on um, and the risk that they would take. And, you know, I was going in and you know the the 21st century, and and that was after after logging roads had been put in, and after the swamp had been drained to a significant extent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but just to be able to kind of sit with the swamp, you know, you get a sense of you sit there long enough, and you look around, and you sort of get the lay of the land. You can start to hear the people, you know, people from history. You can start to to envision where they would have been, what they would have been doing. And with a story like this, when you're when you're struggling always to find the sources to tell your story, um, you take what you can. And that sort of experience, I think, is, is important. I mean, it literally is going into the swamp to better understand what the people who live there would have experienced. So so that was the, the first way that it informed my telling of the story. But most importantly, the the archaeological work <clears throat> filled in gaps that. It would have been completely unfillable without it. Um, and the reason that I put the story on a back burner, put the Dismal Swamp on the back burner initially, was just because the sources weren't there. I mean, or at least they would have been too hard to find for me as this really young researcher just starting grad school. And um, over two decades, I was able to get pretty good at, at finding not, not even needles in a haystack, but like half of a needle in a thousand haystacks. Um, and had pieced together... A, a pretty good body of sources that were informing this story of the Great Dismal Swamp Maroons, but still, it wasn't all there. I mean, and again, these are people who who escaped from their enslavement and then didn't want to leave like a written record of it. They didn't take you know minutes of meetings that they held in the swamp. They didn't take a census. Um, it was to you know to disappear. There were no sources uh, from the swamp itself. I mean, there were some interviews that I came across that were were given in the late 19th century. Here and there, you might get a, a first-person account of the swamp, but very, very rare. Not enough nearly to write a book about, right? Um, but I knew enough about different maroon societies, you know, in the Caribbean and, and Central and South America, to know that some of the things that I was seeing in the Dismal Swamp were very similar to other instances of marinage. And um, you, you get, you know, through being able to bring those other um, examples into play, a sense of what must have happened, M must have been the case, probably happened, um, but still, you know, you want good documentation of the place that you're studying, the place that you're trying to write about. And the archaeology allowed that. Um, you learn a topic well enough to when there are gaps in what you're trying to, to prove, you know, what's in that gap, you know, <laughs> you know, what's in there. But if you can't find it somewhere, you know, an airtight source, you either find a source or you just, you know, you have to say maybe might have, you know, here's what possibly happened. Nobody wants to read that all the time. But the archaeology really filled in a lot of those gaps, and it allowed me to tell a much more textured story, a much more full, a much fuller story 
than I would have been able to do otherwise. So for instance, you know, the, the uh, material culture of the Maroons really helped me to, to, to uh, fill in some gaps having to do with how, um, you know, how Maroons made a living, how they, how they got food and fed their families, um, what sorts of agriculture they engaged in. Um, what was really helpful is the, the kind of the, the imagining of a Maroon community or village. Um, the archaeology was really informative in what these structures would have looked like, uh, what size they would have been, how much you know, territory they would have taken up. Um, and then once you start to be able to, to piece all that together, you can start telling stories about the lives of people that lived in this world. And um, without the archaeology, I mean, you said I probably would have been able to tell the story anyway. I don't know. You know, I don't know if I would have been able to tell it in a way that that, you know, historians who always demand, you know, empiricism. I don't know if, if people would have bought it, but the archaeology um, and, and really coming at it from a lot of different um, perspectives from from, you know, literature, from history, from archaeology, from, you know, musicology and different different sorts of approaches. It allowed me to tell the fullest story I possibly could in the best ways that I possibly could. And, um, and, and the result is this dismal freedom book. So the archeology span was, was one of the primary things that I leaned on in telling this story. And without, you know, the work of the great dismal swamp landscape study, it just wouldn't have been there. I mean, that was, that was the first archeological work to have ever been done in the great dismal swamp. And, um, you know, it's just, it, it really allowed me to tell a story that I probably wouldn't have been able to do well otherwise. So, and, and part of the reason why I said, um, you technically could have, because I don't take, I don't take it for gospel that everybody who writes about a particular landscape or a particular place has also also been there. I remember um, I uh, moderated a panel for um, AIHS two years ago for uh, Dr. Glimpse, uh, uh, the woman's fight, and I remember her saying that like for her to be able to write about whatever place that she needs to have been there to at least be able to take in the space. And, and I say this also as someone who um, I have a fellowship through Colonial Williamsburg in a month and a half and uh, for three months. And so during that time, it's going to be my first time, you know, being able to go to uh, the dismal as well. Uh, I don't think I'll have a, a suit and tie on, uh, but, you know, I'll definitely have to have some, um, I actually used to work for the Park Service and the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, actually, at Shigatig, uh National Wildlife Refuge. And um, it was during that time that I realized, like, oh, my, as, as you're talking about, you know, horse flies, you're talking about, like, nets and, you know, the different things that you need to have to protect yourself from, from effectively nature. Um, it took me back uh, to, to those experiences and to think about how you know, narration happens, but also the the experience that you have as the researcher to be able to take those experiences and put them in the book. But it's also why, um, as someone who's who's uh, interested in books and publications um, and, and how the material happens, I'm looking even at the subjects, uh, the subjects that the at, that UNC put on here, and these are these are all history. But I think that what the fa fascinating thing is about what you just said, what I've experienced from that maroon life, especially the maroon life chapter um, in the dismal, is that this isn't necessarily just a history uh, text. Mm -hmm. It's most defined by history, sure. But it would be interesting to think about 
you know, when this becomes the uh, paperback version and you switch from, uh, in that version, from being a professor of history at the University of South Carolina, Beaufort, that it, you know, not only is changing to Clemson, but also to add uh, to possibly, I don't know. I, th I think that, you know, I'd be interested to know what people in these different fields, like archaeology and others, mm. would think about it. But I think the your book is underpinned by contributions from these different fields, like archaeology yeah. and otherwise and material culture studies, that, you know, and, and maybe for most, this might be just a very pedantic, very, like, very narrow conversation. But I think it is important to think about um, when we write books and for me to be able to go to the dismal and to be able to lean on archaeological records and hopefully at some point be able to go inside like that too, hopefully. Uh, if anyone's listening that can, please hit my email. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it would be sick because you, Dr. You know, Golden and Nevius have all spoken about uh, your own experiences being in the dismal and because that, um, I see y'all as the three main scholars, right? At least right now, not having access in that way, you can visit. But to be able to get into the interior in that way takes away, I think, something yeah. from what you're able to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's being able to get in there. I don't know if, if my experience in the swamp is can be felt by a reader. But what it allowed me to do is to approach the sources in a much more empathetic way, you know, to um, to understand when somebody complains about the yellow flies in a source. I know exactly like in June, middle of June, those yellow biting flies come out and it's not the snakes. It's not the alligators. It's those flies that will drive you insane. You know, so it, it allows you to to not fully because you never can fully, but to as much as I think anybody can now get into the shoes of the people who are living this history and to be able to write their perspective in a way that, that gets much closer to their actual experience. You know, it's, it's a lot like probably the closest we come to like method acting, you know, <laughs> to be able to, you know, to well, that's that, great. Yep. Yep. To be able to make that story as real as possible for the author so that what I write can be as, as true, you know, as, as possible for the reader. And um, I mean, I, I just think that's very important. And like you said, you don't have to go into the swamp to be able to write the history of it, but it it helps, you know, infinitely to be able to tell that story. And, and you know, Marcus and Catherine, they have they've done the same thing. They've been a part of the the field schools. And um, and I know from reading their own work, it's even maybe, you know, somebody else might not know it, <laughs> but I can tell in the way that they treat a certain source or the stories that they tell or the way that they, you know, narrate the scene. I know that they're drawing from their direct experience in the Great Dismal Swamp, and I appreciate it so much more because of that. Right, and, and also, in terms of appreciation, I was also doing some, uh, when you were talking, I was also looking on your um, on your personal page and looking through your CV. You went to Cornell. So were you working with uh, Ed Baptist at, during that time? Yeah, Ed, Ed was my PhD advisor. Okay. Um, but okay. this was this kind of right at the beginning of the freedom of the moves. That's, that's probably what you're getting at. Um, and I was able to, to, you know, to use what they had in the database at its early stages. Um, mm. But, you know, working with Ed is great to, to bounce ideas off of him. And he was, you know, he read the manuscript and, um, you know, right before it went to press. And this wasn't my dissertation, you know, so, but right. he had read parts of it before. And, um, you know, to, to be able to have him as a, as a sounding board has been great. But the work that he's doing with Freedom on the Move is amazing. 
And I think yeah. that project is going to bring, um, I mean, there were these, these other projects that had like uh, North Carolina slave ads and, and Virginia, yep. Yep. but this is something that's, you know, by, you know, many scales of magnitude, much bigger than all of that. And it's going to really change the way that people do research. I really think so. And it, it's a great tool to have. It's been really helpful for me. And also I've, I've gotten to know Ed a bit, uh, actually quite a bit um, over the last uh, probably now four years, give or take. Yeah, about four years. And funny enough, his, uh, you know, obviously people talk about his uh, his second book, but for me, uh, his first book on um, creating an old South, um, I think that was a, the title, um, yeah. as a Floridian, mm -hmm. that book for me is more special uh, because I think it's also one because he talks about the intellectual history of Florida as a destination for, you know, in, in the mind's eye of enslaved people, of white Southerners from across the country, um, and also as people to use the quote unquote resources of Florida. Um, so, so I think for me personally, that, you know, Ed, I know you're listening. Uh, just want to let you know, buddy. That book, Creating an Old South, that's actually my favorite. I know people would talk about the other one for different sorts of reasons, but I love this one. Just just, just putting that out there um, as well. So, um, but veering back to Dismal Freedom, I want to actually talk to you about this title um, and also its meaning and, and where it derives from. So you use Dismal Freedom really as a framework to describe the form of freedom uh, Black folks uh, took on in and around the, the Dismal. So ultimately, what is Dismal Freedom? Um, and why do you think this framework uh, was useful for you in the creation of uh, the, the book? Yeah, Dismal Freedom, these are two words that seem to be contradictory. And, and I, I love that because uh, one of the things that I want people to take away from this book is a, a, a new understanding of just what freedom means. And, you know, dismal freedom, how can, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Well, it, it's just a thing, you know. Um, the maroons of the dismal swamp, there were, there were many different reasons why they might have marooned to the swamp. They could have stayed there for a couple of days, a couple of months, or a lifetime. But a lot of them ended up staying in the swamp, you know, living out the rest of their days in the dismal swamp. There were people who were, who were born in the swamp lived out their entire lives in the swamp, never saw a white face in their entire life, lived that whole experience in the Great Dismal Swamp. Um, and they were free. You know, they were just as free or more free than a lot of other Americans, you know, black or white. And I realized at a certain point in this project that, um, you know, freedom did not mean if you were African-American and enslaved, freedom did not mean this journey on the Underground Railroad from the Deep South to Canada. That wasn't, I mean, that was a type of freedom, but it wasn't the be all and end all of freedom because people in the Dismal Swamp were choosing to go to this place as their goal in the middle of the South and not leave. And they lived a free life there as well. So freedom is something that exists on this really long continuum. I think I, I mentioned a little bit of that in that bit of the intro that I read right at the beginning. But, um, you know, freedom was not either slavery or free. I mean, there were so many other degrees of freedom along this continuum and people that lived in the dismal, you know, they, they lived this life that was in, in many ways controlled by the, the limitations of living in a swamp, right? The dangers of living in a swamp. But at the end of the day, each and every person that lived their lives in the swamp was choosing consciously every day to live there rather than live enslaved. So dismal freedom was a choice that people were making. 
Um, so this idea, this reconceptualization of freedom, I think is important. Um, one of the big pushbacks I got early in the process of actually sort of figuring out how this is going to look as a book was a statement in one of the early book proposals that the, the Maroons of the Dismal Swamp were able to thrive. And one of the reviewers said, this is, you know, it's ridiculous. We can't say that they thrive. They're living in a swamp. And, and, you know, I, and I responded to that, you know, probably the longest response to a reviewer's critique that any author has ever given. But I wrote all about how, you know, if we can say that, that free black people in the North were able to thrive, right. Then why can we not say they were able to thrive in the dismal swamp? If nobody's saying anymore that, you know, slavery was something that just destroyed people and was this, this absolute institution. It was something that even within slavery, there were different degrees of, of freedom and unfreedom and, and abilities to, to have flexibility within the system. Well, you know, the Dismal Swamp offered that as well. And um, I think this title really brings those, those distinctions together in a way that makes people think differently about freedom um, and think differently about the lives of people who were seeking it. And that, that's actually really helpful to re really think about how this form of particular freedom in the Dismal um, provided something in a way that freedom in the, not even just the North, but we'll just say Canada, um, it didn't, it pushed you so far away from the center of slavery or centers of slavery rather, that if you wanted to, you know, enact violence against the system, really outside of maybe, um, at least violent reprisal, we'll just say that. This time, I'm sure that there can be an argument that can be made, um, you know, that the Color Conventions movement, which is also a part of, you know, the Canadian story story as well, um, you know, push back against the system too, um, and or the, you know, uh, John Brown's, you know, uh, raids as well. But for the most part, I definitely um, understand, you know, because I will say that there were some times where I did think, I was like, I had to really think, I was like, what does it mean when you try to make particular claims about a space uh, like the Dismal where a word like thrive or, you know, because you it's the weighing of it. Because what does that mean in terms of, you know, freedom? And you even said it before, sometimes more free than black or white people. And to really think about that. And so that, that's something that I'm, I'm going to think more about. Um, and it was something that I did think about when you were reading. So I'm glad that you even brought that up in terms of even pushback, because I think that, you know, it is something that I will be interested to see what people think. Um, yeah. Because mm -hmm. as you say, that this is uh, what one of the first, I think you said, one of the first comprehensive histories or might be the first of the Dismal Swamp, I think I read. Um, yeah. in your intro. You know, um, Dismal Freedom was not a paradise. And, and you're not yeah. going to find a paradise, a viable paradise for African-Americans in, in the 18th and 19th century in the United States. Just not. Um, but, you know, within the swamp, there is no racism. <laughs> you know, um, within the swamp, you don't have to worry about, about your family being nabbed under the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, within the swamp, you can build your own house. You can call it your own. You can start a family. You can have livestock that are your own. The, the fruits of your labor at the end of the day belong only to you. Um, and if you if you kind of forget for a minute that you're you're living in the middle of the biggest swamp on the eastern seaboard, 
um, it actually looks like a, t- a kind of life, a type of life that formerly enslaved people could not have found anywhere else. So it, it I mean, there's, there's pros and cons to, to anywhere a self-emancipated person might land, but you'd be hard pressed to find a place other than the dismal swamp that offered as many freedoms as they found there. Yeah. And, and so also this makes me think about, um, you know, you to take you to take readers to the early chapters of um, of digital freedom. I'm I, I'm really interested to hear you speak a bit more about the multiracial history uh, that you describe, and because the digital freedom is largely about people of African descent. So I'm 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 interested to hear more about um, what you think in terms of um, this, what does this multiracial story tell us? A multi-class story too about you know early Virginia and early uh, Carolina history as well before it I believe it transfers over uh, to to the bifurcation of uh, Carolina. Um, so can you tell us more about that particular story too? Yeah, it's I mean it's it's a fascinating story. I mean the story of the Dismal Swamp doesn't start when enslaved people begin to escape and find a refuge in the Dismal Swamp. I mean the Dismal Swamp. The, the first few pages is just sort of the natural history of the Dismal Swamp and how it actually came to be right where it is. Uh, but, you know, before Europeans show up and, and claim this to be a new world, it, it absolutely wasn't. I mean, it was a territory that was utilized by Native Americans uh, and their telling of it back to time immemorial. And the Dismal Swamp was not a place that was necessarily occupied, lived in by Native American groups. Um, but there was a significant indigenous presence in the swamp, whether it was for ceremonial reasons or hunting. Um, so they utilized the swamp just like they would any other landscape to, you know, to the degrees that, that were most useful to them. Then when um, Europeans show up, <laughs> things start to, to change and European encroachment on Native American territory does start driving Native American populations into, into parts of the landscape that were less um, less useful, I guess, in, in the eyes of, of the colonizers. And um, you do start to see Native Americans not only hunting in the Dismal Swamp, but in some cases taking up residence there, living there. And especially after like the, uh, the Tuscarora War in the early 1700s, the, the remnants, the, the survivors of that war that don't go north, they go into the swamp. Um, and they are eventually joined there by... Um, outcasts, white outcasts from society, people who have either escaped indentured from indentures in Virginia or, you know, owed taxes and, and escaped down into the northern part of um, Carolina. Uh, they were living near and in the swamp. And then, of course, from, you know, 1619 on, you, you get an increasing African presence and um, escaping African-Americans find a refuge in the swamp. And, and they build on the experiences of those that have come before them, which are Native Americans, um, for the most part, and then some, you know, some some lower class white people who were living in the sort of the lawless northern part of Carolina as well. So it, it's an interesting class story. It's an interesting racial story. In the early years of the swamp, um, probably African Americans were a minority there. Um, now, the the multiracial nature of the swamp over time, um, over time, I mean, it becomes more heavily black. But one really interesting thing that the archaeology brings to the fore, and, and nobody would have realized this except for the archaeology. Here's another example of this. African-Americans, Maroons, in the Great Dismal Swamp, 
would mine the swamp. I mean, the, the dismal swamp is a peat swamp. There's nothing, um, there's no stone anywhere in the swamp. And everything that the, um, the Maroons would have used that was made out of stone would have either had to be brought in to the swamp from outside or found in the swamp. And, and when you talk about Native Americans hunting in the swamp thousands of years ago, sometimes their, you know, their weapons, their tools would be lost or discarded. And this is one of the things or some of the things that dismal swamp Maroons would actually bring out of the swamp themselves um, in Dan Sayers' words, resuscitate these tools and use them for their own um, purposes. So Native American tools that might have been broken could be resharpened, resurfaced, and used by a maroon. Um, and that use of ancient tools, um, very likely, you know, in the in the mind of the user, they were aware of this connection. Maroons in you know the 1850s who were using a tool that was made by a Native American a thousand years before. Um, fully understood that, you know, we are marginalized people. These are the tools that we've made. This is the way that we survive. And, and that consciousness, that, that understanding of that continuity between, you know, them and Native Americans was really powerful. Um, there's some instances where uh, Native American pottery was incorporated into the architecture and the buildings of the Maroons and the swamp could have just been for structural reasons, but probably not. You know, you could find ways to to, to shore up a corner of a house other than using Native, Native American pottery pieces. Um, and, uh, you know, Dan believes, and I believe him too, that, you know, that the Maroons were making this, this conscious gesture to the history that came before them of incorporating Native American artifacts into their day-to-day -day lives. I mean, it's really fascinating. And, and you've got to think that the people that lived in the swamp, no matter when, understood that they were not the only ones who had lived there in the past or would live there in the future. And um, even though by the time you get to the Civil War, it's, it's almost entirely African-American, the memory and the, the sort of the culture of the swamp relies very heavily on those that had come before. And, you know, we've often been talking about sources here, so I'm, I'm glad that um, I had it muted out like this. Um, so in terms of, you know, you talked about some of the um, sources that you've used and talk about the different uh, writings that you've had over the course of, you said, about 20 years to be able to get to this point. Um, I'm also interested to know, just generally speaking, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced um, putting together Dismal Freedom um, in terms of whether it be writing, researching, organizing even, um, your, your, you know, the themes for your chapters? Um, this is generally, obviously, a chronological story, uh, but there's a lot of them. There's also thematic spaces as well. Obviously, Maroon Life of the Dismal uh, as a chapter, for instance. So so take us um, into your process as the, the author of this book to talk a bit more about challenges that you face as well. There are plenty of challenges. Um, sources were the biggest challenge. And, and I'm fully convinced that the reason that this story has not been told fully before is that it's just, it was just too much work to get at these, to find the sources to write the story. Um, and, and what a lot of historians, I mean, admittedly, probably people who were not looking to write the story of the Great Dismal Swamp Maroons, but just kind of casually looked at the, the documentary record and said, there's nothing here, so there's no story here either. Um, I think Gene Genovese said that the, the Maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp should only be called Maroons as a courtesy. 
well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but, you know, he had in mind the, the Maroons of the Caribbean and Brazil when he was saying that and just didn't know because nobody had been able to find enough evidence of it that the Dismal Swamp, you know, we're talking thousands of people. It's more than just a courtesy to call these Maroons. Um, so, you know, being lucky enough in a lot of ways to find these sources that help tell the story. And when I say luck, um, and I've, I've mentioned before, it's not just finding a needle in a haystack necessarily, but, you know, a piece of a needle in a thousand haystacks. Here's how you here's how I've stumbled upon some sources that really informed what I was doing with this Dismal Swamp book. So I was I was finishing up my first book on Oberlin and the anti-slavery movement. And I was doing some research in Oberlin. I was in the library late at night going through some microfilm and came across in 1865 in a local newspaper. There was a, a title of an article that said Life in the Swamp. And when I read that and started to, to read the article itself, I probably squealed a little bit. I mean, people probably turned around in the quiet library to see what this guy was was making noise about. But there was an Oberlin student who um, had had enlisted in the war at the beginning of the Civil War. And in 1865, his job was to take a census of contrabands um, in, in, in around Norfolk, Virginia. And so he was going, you know, to, to family after family and sort of asking this series of questions, you know, what's your name, where you're from, how long have you been behind our lines, et cetera. And he gets to a guy named Abraham Lester and he asks him the standard questions and he asks him the one about how long have you been behind our lines? And Abraham Lester says, well, five, six years. And he, he rephrased the question because he thought that Abraham Lester had misunderstood him. Um, and he gave the same answer and come to find out Abraham Lester had been a maroon in the Great Dismal Swamp for five or six years. <laughs> and he began to tell this, this Oberlin student about his life in the swamp. He had met his wife there, married her there, had children there, talked about the, the type of have house that he had built for his family, how they made ends meet, you know, what kind of food they ate, this and that. It was the most amazing source, still one of the most amazing sources that I've ever come across um, that dealt with maroon life. You get that, that inside view of what was really happening in the swamp. But I found that doing research for a totally and completely unrelated book. <laughs> um, and and so it's, it's that sort of good luck, I guess, to be able to, to find stories like that. Now, here's an interesting story about that, too. So I was I was doing this research for the other book. So I was happy to find this source. So I photocopied. I mean, I scanned the um, microfilm to, to look back when I got home. So I read the article again when I got home. And the last sentence in this newspaper article was to be continued in our next issue. <laughs> So I had to go back to Ohio, go back to Oberlin, get the microfilm back out and find the next issue, which was an interview by the same Oberlin student. But it was with Abraham Lester's wife, um, a woman named Lorenda White. And she talked about, you know, her life um, in enslavement, her life of escape to the Dismal Swamp, meeting Abraham, the family that they made together. It was just amazing. But but knowing that those sources were out there was was a blessing and a curse. I mean, it really frustrated me that I might never find them all. I'm sure I didn't. Um, but it gave me, you know, a sense of, you know, you can look in these other places for sources and the stories are there. Um, so just finding the sources is a bit of luck, but um, that was the biggest amount of work. And, you know, a lot of people have to worry about, you know, whittling down their sources to be able to tell the story they want to tell. But I was always worried about not having enough information. And again, that's where the archaeology comes into it. So um, eventually I had enough and um, they weren't the sources that I would have chosen necessarily before I started the project to, to write this airtight story. And it's not an airtight story, but it's it's, I think, the fullest story that can be told of this. But um, getting uh, getting into the book writing itself, 
Um, the biggest challenge I had was I had a three-year-old that was constantly at my feet the whole time. <laughs> Schools are out and, and, you know, and I had to figure out what to do, but I think she, she made the book a little bit better herself, but um, just, you know, approaching it in a chronological way, but when I can to kind of branch out a little bit too, as it was always really fun um, to be able to bring, you know, how popular culture in the 1850s figured into this, this paranoia that the dismal swamp seemed to encourage. Harry Beecher Stowe writes a book that's said in the dismal swamp, a lot of it. Um, John Brown refers to the dismal swamp as a place that he wants to maybe retreat to and, and start the revolution within the South. I mean, it, there's a lot of, of references to the dismal swamp over the years that I look at that give me a chance to sort of step away from the chronology a little bit and, and, and situate the dismal swamp story in, in the larger story of, of, anti-slavery abolition and, and resistance to slavery by the enslaved. Um, and the writing of it was, was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, I realized as I wrote that the time that I had spent in the swamp is, was paying off. I mean, it really did give me the opportunity to, to get into the minds and the shoes of the people as best I could and write their stories in ways that I just hadn't been able to do, you know, in other projects that were totally unrelated. So, um, and the end result is, is dismal freedom. To, to, and to hold it in my hand was, you know, it's, it's a great experience too. any author will tell you when you're able to really hold that book and, and realize that this is the, the culmination of so many years of hard work um, is it's really satisfying. But also for me, being able to um, to do a service to the people that I'm writing about was was incredible, too. Um, in the introduction, I write a little bit about how, uh, you know, Maroons were because they didn't fit into this white supremacist ideology, they were always criticized. They were called fugitives and bandits and, you know, desperados. And anytime that people's names appear in the historical record, very often it's as, you know, as a named person in a fugitive slave ad or in a newspaper article that talks about this, this, this stupid rogue who dared to attack somebody on the street or on the road as they, you know, um, went in their buggy past, past the dismal swamp. I, in the, the dedication to the book, I actually dedicated it to all the named Maroons that I was able to come across in my research because I really felt good about being able to kind of resurrect their stories, their lives, their names from, you know, the abuse of white people in the 19th century to, you know, a place of, of reverence and respect at this point for, for living this history that I'm able to write about. So all of that was, was a great experience. And, you know, like I said uh, at the beginning in that little passage I read, the voices of the Maroons is really what I tried to get at. So to be able to give voice to people who have not had that for so long was, was really satisfying. And I'm, I'm also glad that you um, added the dedication in the way that you did. Um, and because at the end of the day, it's always good to use um, as many people's stories as possible. And you know, I'm I'm just looking through the names here and just thinking about folks like, you know, Venus Dismal, you know, who, you know, someone who writes in the revolutionary era, I definitely know, or Tom Shaw, uh, Suki Dismal, um, uh, Bob Farabee, definitely, um, along with um, a, a host of other folks. And so I'm glad that you added that. Um, but I'm also interested to know, so I, I recently read um, David Silkenot's uh, Scars uh, on the Land and, and Environmental History of Slavery in the American South. And it made me think as well about historians who have to, who have to use different skills, you know, you know, in terms of knowledge of, you know, environmental history, ecology, and the like. 
so can you also talk a bit about, because this is, I had a question about sources, but you've spoken at length about it. So I'm actually uh, going to pivot a bit and speak actually, uh, or ask you to speak a bit more. What was the process at which you accumulated knowledge about environmental history, ecology and such? Because to you, by reading this book, it lets me know that you had to have known a bit about that, uh, of those different um, areas of history and also outside of history as well to be able to construct dismal freedom. So can you talk to us a bit more about uh, that method as well? I don't know if there's any method to the madness really, but you know, no, going into the project, <clears throat> I knew the people I wanted to get at were the Maroons, but the dismal swamp itself was a historical actor in all of this. So I really wanted to, I, I read widely about, you know, about other works that dealt with swamps to try to figure out what other scholars had, had done with just the idea, the concept of a swamp and how, landscape can affect, you know, human history. And, and there's a, a lot of amazing work that's done, that's, that's been done on that. It's really informed the way that I approach it. Uh, and I realized that it's not just, you know, these traditional historical methods, uh, research methods I'm going to have to do. So I read a lot of, you know, scientific literature that would have, you know, bored me otherwise, but it, it gave me insight into, you know, the flora and the fauna of the Great Dismal Swamp. And, um, you know, people that experienced the swamp write a lot about what they saw and what they witnessed, and they usually had no idea what they were writing about. You know, you, you come across often references to to lions and tigers in the dismal swamp, and wasn't that at all. I mean, probably bobcats, right, is, is what they're dealing with. But you are able to put, you know, uh, actual facts with what people thought they saw. And, um, you know, the, the scientific literature from the from the 1800s all the way to the present was was heavily informative of the way that I approached this. Um, it really that more than anything helped me to figure out just how people lived in the swamp. Um, there were very few sources that I came across that actually said, you know, for instance, what what the Maroons ate. You know, they eat. Right. But so what is it that they eat um, with the archaeology? The swamp is so acidic that anything organic basically didn't survive or very little, little survived. So you're not going to find a lot of bones to be able to tell what they ate or, you know, remnants of food. Um, you do have sources that talk about gardens, but in a very limited sort of way. So by reading, you know, outside of disciplines that I'm really comfortable with, I was able to figure out, you know, what, what crops grow in this general ge ge geographic location, um, what crops grow best in a very acidic um, landscape, you know, and, and it was able to figure out what they were very likely growing. And that was able to, to help me figure out, you know, how many calories they would have had to, to consume a day to be able to live, how much area and space they would have needed to plant. Um, and still, you know, it was a hard an question to answer. And then nobody had really been able to uh, figure out, you know, how really, how did these people survive? They had livestock, they had uh, crops in the field, the answer was cattails. <laughs> and I was able to realize that, you know, through my reading outside of, of, you know, my normal areas that cattails, which are just rampant through the swamp are entirely edible. Every piece of a cattail is edible. And that is the one thing that Maroons would have always had access to four seasons out of the year um, in different ways that would have been able to sustain probably thousands of people in the swamp. And, and that was always the stumbling point that people, you know, if there's thousands of people in the swamp, they can't grow enough, you know, raise enough cattle to feed everybody. You can't grow enough corn to feed everybody. There had to be something else. And that was kind of the missing piece. So, you know, reading in these disciplines other than just, you know, regular history was 
was absolutely necessary to, again, to fill in gaps that were there. We don't have maroon menus, just the same way we don't have maroon censuses and, and anything like that. So um, understanding the, the environment as best you can, understanding, you know, what might grow there, what might not, what sort of animals you would encounter, um, uh, you know, climate, landscape, whatever, it, it really was able to help me fill in the gaps and tell a full and complete story. And so, Pitt, you know, we're moving towards the, the end here. So um, one of the things that I, I found that's been interesting trying to think about even some of my work, um, I'm, I'm reading uh, Johann Yule's Diary of the American War now. And, you know, he's talking about Kemp's Landing. He's talking about Great Bridge. He's talking about these areas that you describe as part of the uh, maroon landscape um, or in the greater Dizzleton region, um, you know, areas near Suffolk and others. And so it makes me think a lot about reading his diary and his descriptions of Black folks, especially. It makes me think about order and disorder. And so I'm interested to know from your vantage point as the researcher, um, how did Marinage and Dismal Freedom help to cultivate a culture of disorder in, in the white Chesapeake uh, and, and Tidewater regions of, of, you know, as we're calling North Carolina and uh, Virginia. So can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, in this situation too, disorder was, was very similar to fear and paranoia. Um, one caused the other. So um, one of the things about the early attempts to um, to conquer the dismal, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, these these uh, colonists who wanted to come in, reclaim the swamp, drain it, you know, turn it over to agriculture, grow corn or hemp or whatever. Um, they weren't able to do it. <laughs> uh, the dismal swamp could not be conquered. It could not be um, controlled by white people. It just couldn't by anybody. Um, and it was just sort of right there, almost like a big black eye in the middle of these developing plantation societies. And the fact that it was there and essentially untouchable was, was incredibly frustrating to, to colonizers. <laughs> um, but the fact that it was a swamp and not just a place you couldn't get into, but a swamp, I mean, it was not productive. It was if you let it alone, the swamp would expand and take over. You know, the vines would take over farmland and you had to constantly fight the swamp. The swamp refused. I mean, the swamp, you couldn't even tell if it was if it was land or if it was water. It kind of commingled and you couldn't even divide it up in that way. And it, it defied every way of thinking about things that people of the 17th, the, the, the late 17th, early 18th century tried to define things. I mean, if you look at, at um, these Georgian colonial architecture, you see a lot of symmetry. You see um, these gardens that everything is symmetrical. Um, things are, are in order. In the swamp, there was none of that. Um, in the swamp, not only was there no order, there was no symmetry. It was a place that was a magnet for the people that didn't also fit in that society. It became a magnet for people who didn't want to pay taxes or didn't want to serve out their indenture or later on people that you know, we're fed up with being enslaved and we're trying to find a better life with more freedom for themselves. Um, the population that lived and grew in the swamp was was out of order. You know, it, it couldn't be brought under under order of any sort. So all of that um, was a constant 
uh, frustration to those people that that lived on the outskirts and those societies around the swamp. And there was nothing that could be done about it. Even when canals cut through the swamp in the, the 19th century, um, it was only in a very sort of superficial way that people could get into the swamp and through the swamp because a couple of feet on either side of the canal, you just couldn't, you know, people couldn't go. Um, as time goes by, not only does that, that inability to, to create or to expand the order that white society wants to impose on everything in the swamp, even though that still exists, the fact that it is now a recognized magnet for, for, you know, for self-emancipating slaves, for people who hate slavery and um, the fear is want to do everything in their power to, to bring down slavery, it becomes not only kind of an eyesore on the landscape, it becomes not only a place that, that white people can't seem to get into, it becomes a potential center for you know, the destruction of slavery and everything that's based upon that in the South. Um, and over and over, white people and African-Americans refer to the Great Dismal Swamp in terms of natural disaster, that there's an earthquake that's going to happen, it's going to be centered in the Dismal Swamp, that it's, gonna, it's like a, a volcano that is just waiting to blow up. Um, and it, it becomes something psychologically that just becomes more and more unbearable to white society that surrounds the swamp um, in a lot of different ways. I mean, the people that are running to the swamp, that are living in the swamp, these are African-Americans who, if you believe, you know, the white supremacist ideology, they shouldn't be capable of making independent decisions on their own. They will not survive if they're not constantly under the beneficent influence of good white civilization, right? That they don't really want to be free, that they're not going to work if they're not compelled to work. Well, here you have people who are deciding that they don't want to be enslaved anymore, that are able to get into the swamp and survive places that white people can't, who are raising families, building structures, literally thriving in the middle of the swamp. And, you know, they are living lives that that do not square with that racial ideology. It's terrifying because that is what the that's what the justification for slavery is resting upon. So not only do you have the growing numbers of people in the swamp, you have growing numbers of people in the swamp who represent everything that slavery should not be. And then one more step, the fact that enslavers, I believe, always recognized a shared humanity in the people that they enslaved. Not, not a respect, but most enslavers did not think of their enslaved people as just property, as chattel property. They looked in the eye of the person across from them and saw another man, right, or another woman. Another person who, if the tables were turned, they knew if I was enslaved, I would do everything I could to break my chains to end slavery. And they always suspected that of the people that they enslaved. And now you have in the swamp a, a large population of people who potentially could have been an army that could bring down slavery. It never was that, right? Most Maroons were just trying to disappear. They were going to live their lives in the swamp and never come out again. But the fact that the people on the outside didn't know what was happening in the swamp and the fact that their paranoia and just fear of what angry, formerly enslaved people were plotting and planning, it just made you know the idea of, of slavery in the Tidewater area almost unsustainable. Um, the prices that people would buy and, and pay for slaves in the area was depressed. Um, the, the security that people had in their slave property was considerably less than other places because um, if you're going to you know to amass on a slave labor camp a large number of enslaved people next to the Great Dizzle Swamp, you know that that's a magnet. It's going to draw off some of your property. Um, the value of the enslaved people you have is less because 
they're no longer actually secure property. There's a lot of different things, a lot of different um, elements that that come into play. And I think more than has actually been talked about a lot before previously, um, the existence of the Great Dismal Swamp as this maroon refuge leads to, in a lot of ways, leads to the Civil War, or at least you know, plays a large part in that process because it it's part of the ideological um, breaking down of slavery. You, Southerners get to the point where slavery feels like it's under attack, literally under attack, but it's also intellectually under attack. And when they can't fight back against that, then that's when slavery becomes too much and something else has to happen, whether that's secession or war. Dismal Swamp is right there and I think plays a very important role in that process. And that's, you know, just like I said, disorder and order in general, um, I think is something that I'm becoming more and more interested in as as key concepts. Um, and so I, it's, it, it was definitely something that I definitely saw in, in Digital Freedom and Digital Freedom is allowing me to see it more in the work that I'm doing uh, about uh, Tidewater women in um, refugee camps and, and military camps and, and the American Revolution and really think about they're trying to, you know, seek this refuge, but there's a particular form of order that the white British uh, officers are trying to instill. And these folks are like, fuck that, I don't care. Like, and you know, the, you know, maybe not as simply like that, but they're very much um, trying to push against those limits. Um, yeah, no, that's exactly like that. I mean, the, the yeah. order that, that whites want to impose on African-Americans, they have no interest in conforming to that order at all. You know, order for these two different populations is totally different. And the, you know, the ends of that order, you know, why have this order in the first place? They're totally different as well. And at, and at cross purposes, too. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. And so um, for, for our last question here, um, can you tell the audience here, uh, current listeners, future readers, um, what do you want for for readers to take away from reading Dismal Freedom, um, a history of the Maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp? You know, I want them to experience just even a little bit of what I experienced in writing this story. I mean, it was it was it was exciting. You know, every page that I wrote, I felt you know just this this excitement of being able to tell the story, and I hope they're able to have a, an enjoyable reading experience in a lot of ways. Um, because at the end of the day, what this is, is a story of, of human resilience, of, um, of people who wanted to survive so badly and people who wanted free lives, um, some sense of normal lives, you know, as much as they possibly could, who would do it anywhere they could. And they found room to do it within a swamp. I mean, I think that's an amazing story of resistance and human resilience. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's what this book is, is meant to convey. A lot of people aren't going to read this for the, you know, the, the small little historiographic uh, interventions that I make in here, they're going to read it for the story that it tells or the, the life stories that it tells collectively. So that that's one thing. I mean, above all, that's, that's what I want people to take away from it. But I do want, like I've said a couple of times, I want people to, to think in a different way about freedom, to be able to think of that in a much more expansive way than, than very often is done um, in, in stories like this, uh, a more nuanced way of thinking about resistance you know, resistance to a system, does that have to necessarily have the, the fall of that system as its goal? Or can you resist it simply by existing? You know, um, so to think about that in different ways, um, you know, younger scholars that read this or even people that are established, you know, I want them to understand and realize that, you know, 
an interdisciplinary uh, approach to you know a particular project can you know almost in every case give you a much more textured and full telling of the story and um you know i want people to to know the story of the great dismal swamp maroons i want them to understand um what their lives represented even if it wasn't their intention to represent anything but what their lives represented what they contributed to and and really to what extent the actions of enslaved people and self-emancipated people, to what extent those actions led to the end of slavery itself. I think that's very important. So um, all those things, I mean, that's, that's a lot to ask of a reader, but I hope that they're able to come away from reading the book with some of that. Very well, very well. And I, I certainly uh, <laughs> took, took many of those away as well as uh, the reader uh, preparing for this interview and for our follow-up conversation with um, uh, professors uh, Catherine Benjamin Golden and Professor uh, Marcus Nebius, uh, and two of y'all are at new institutions um, yeah. <laughs> as well. With uh, you going to Clemson, and now the word can get out about uh, Marcus going to Mizzou. And so, um, looking forward to that one through the African American Intellectual History Society um, during Black History Month. And so, y'all, I've had the amazing opportunity to chat with. Clemson University professor uh, Jay Brett Morris, author of, D of Dismal Freedom, A History of the Maroons of the Great Dismal Swamp. Uh, I should not say authored, but published rather by the University of North Carolina Press um, last year, if I'm not mistaken. And so y'all, if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, please um, subscribe um, to our uh, podcast here at the New Books Network and I'm your host, Adam McNeil of uh, New Books in African American Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. Until next time, y'all, over and out. <laughs>